Thank you for downloading and listening to the Briam Bible Church Sunday Morning Podcast. Briam Bible Church is located in Shoreline, Washington, morning worship at 11, and many more events throughout the week. For more information, please visit our website at www.bereanshoreline.org. Once again, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphs, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces. With two they covered their feet. And with two they were flying, and they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the sound of their voices, the doorposts, and the threshold shook. And the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined. For I am a man of unclean lips. And I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth. And he said, see, this has taken, this has touched your lips and your guilt is taken away and your sins atoned for. And then I heard the voice of the Lord, of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, here am I, send me. And he said, go, tell this people, be ever hearing, but never understanding. Be ever seeing, but never perceiving. Make the heart of this people calloused. Make their ears dull and close their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. And I said, for how long, O Lord? The call of Isaiah the prophet. Let's pray. Father, as we continue to look into your word this morning, May our hearts hear your words. May your words impact our hearts and lives as we walk with you and live for you. May our lives be honor and glory to your name. In Christ, our Savior's name we pray. Amen. Isaiah chapter 6, the call of Isaiah the prophet. It's interesting, it comes at chapter 6 and not at chapter 1. The chapters 1 through 5 give us the background, give us the context that Israel is in a situation where they have to take very serious the menacing threat from the Assyrian Empire, which is going to destroy them and take them captive and spread them throughout the world, the ten northern tribes. There are many false prophets who are continuing to prophesy, no, no, it's not going to happen. God would not do this. And Isaiah the prophet is called in the midst of this context of this impending doom. In the year that Uzziah died, was the year that they had to take it serious amongst the false prophets that he's called by God to bring this message to his people. It's a message of concern, but it's in the context of the vision of God and, and, his, and the heavens being opened and seeing this amazing picture. We're talking about encounters with God in this series from the Bible. And this is truly an encounter with God. An overpowering encounter with God. We read it twice this morning. John read it to us in faith, and we read it, I just read it to you again from Isaiah chapter 6, that what he sees, he sees God, he sees the Lord high and lifted up, exalted on a throne, 
And he sees the, the train of his temple filling, or train of his robe filling the temple. And he sees these creatures, these seraphim. The word seraph in Hebrew means burning. These burning creatures. These fiery creatures. The seraphim. I am is the, is the plural in Hebrew. The seraphim. These burning ones. And he sees them with these six wings and crying out, Holy, holy is the Lord all God. And the sound of this, the, the building shakes and the doorpost shakes. And it's a, it's a terrifying experience to, to, to see God. And once again, we are, we are with this dilemma in the Bible that clearly says, No man shall see God and live. But Isaiah says, I saw him. I saw him. And he says, and I want you to notice, you know, what he saw. He saw, he saw God as he is. You know, it's so interesting as I thought about this. What changed? What changed? Did God change? Did all of a sudden God take this, this context, this environment, this picture? Or is, is this always there? Is, is this God? Is this picture of God in heaven and his glory and the worship of the angels and the seraphim, is this there? And what changed was all of a sudden Isaiah could see it. And we see this throughout the Old Testament when these people get these visions of God and, and these encounters with God. It's God is there. What changes is for them. Something changed that all of a sudden he was able to see this. And it, I don't, he doesn't say this is a dream. It's, is it a vision? It appears that, that he uses the language that, that he sees this. Something changed. I don't think God changed, but something changed. Because when it's over, he goes back to not seeing it. But look at his response. His response to seeing this is, Woe is me. I think the King James, I am undone. Woe is me. When he sees this vision, what comes across him is this fear. And this, 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 well, this fear of, of, the, of the difference between this holy, pure, exalted God and the context of where he is, and this, these people of God that he lives in their midst. And when he sees this, his response basically is, I am dead. I am dead. He knows that they've been told, no one shall see God and live. And I wonder if this is why he says this. I'm undone. I, woe is me. I, I, I am, I am dead. I am, I am ruined. I am ruined. That's over because I have seen the glory of God. And he, and he says, I am, you know, I am a man of unclean lips. Why, why did he say that? There's been a lot of speculation. Was he a man who actually had trouble with his language? Was he, did he use bad language? It doesn't really say. But isn't our, our lips, isn't that the expression of our heart? Doesn't the, doesn't the Bible say from the heart? pours out the expressions and it, and it comes out and he realizes he's in this context of God's people who, who are not following God. They're following false prophets. They're even worshiping false gods. They have turned away from God. He lives in this context. This is his people. He is, he is one of them. This is an unusual call to prophecy. Very unusual. But he identifies with his people. He says, we, we, we are a people of unclean lips. We are people who are sinful. And it's in that, it's in that context of, of seeing the holy, pure, and blazing glory of God that it comes upon him how, how ruined we, he is amongst his people because of their sin. 
And it's interesting. And he says, I've seen the king, the Lord Almighty. And one of the seraphs takes a live coal from the fire and sears his lips with fire. And And it's all of a sudden his lips are clean. They've been purified. And this is maybe a picture of what's going to happen because the message that, that Isaiah is given, you know, one would expect, if you had never read this before, you might respect, might, you might expect that when, when God, when he hears this voice, who will go for us? Who will go to these people and, and tell them the truth? Who's willing to go and tell the truth and not be a false prophet? To tell them what's going to happen. And Isaiah, after, he's, after he sees God, and, 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 his, and his lips, his, his lips are, are cleaned. And, 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 and Isaiah, Isaiah says, I will go. Here am I. Send me. Now, one might expect at this point that the message would be, thank you, Isaiah. Go and be victorious. Right? Wouldn't you kind of hope that might be the call? But it's sort of like the Apostle Paul. When he is, when Saul of Tarsus is converted, what does Ananias tell him? I must show him what? All things he must suffer for the gospel's sake. And basically, Isaiah's commission is, Isaiah, you are not going to change their hearts. They are not going to listen to you. You go and tell them, but they're not going to listen. And in fact, I'm going to make sure they don't listen because they've already crossed the line. They've already gone past the line. I'm not going to allow them back. You go and preach to them. You convict them, but their hearts are going to be fat. Their ears are going to be dull lest they change. This is his commission. How would you like that job? How would you like that job? Nobody wants to be unpopular, right? Sometimes God's word is not real popular. Don't be surprised. But he says go. But it is interesting. As he goes, at this last part of that chapter, and he says, well, how, how long do I have to do this, God? How long am I going to have to do this so these people aren't going to respond? And look what he says in verse 11. Until the cities lie ruined and without inhabitant. Boy, that's, that's the, I mean, how much worse could it get? Until their houses are left deserted, the fields ruined and ravaged, until the Lord has sent everyone far away and the land is utterly forsaken. And though a tenth, now look at this, and though a tenth remains in the land, a remnant, it will again be laid waste. But as the terebinth and the oak leaves stumps when they are cut down, so the holy seed will be the stump in Israel. You see, there is hope. See, Isaiah's commission is to go and preach and don't expect, don't expect the vast majority of people to listen to this cross the line. They are going into captivity. They are going away. They are going to lose this land. And friends, when Israel lost the land, it was the worst possible thing the false prophets kept saying, no, it's not going to happen. You're not going to lose the land. Don't worry, it's not going to happen. And God said, you are going to lose this land. You are going to lose everything if you don't stop. And it happened. But the message of hope, God is going to leave a remnant. There will be, Isaiah, it is not, it is not worthless. It is not fruitless. You preach because there is going to be a small remnant that are going to hear this message and they are going to remain faithful. And it's that small remnant I am going to use to rebuild once again. Woe is me. I'm dead. For my eyes have seen the Lord, the King of glory. Now I want you to look at John chapter 12. What did Isaiah see? In the Gospel of John, 
As we're going to transition to another encounter with God, but I want you to try and pull these two pieces together. In John chapter 12, the Apostle John, one of the three of the Lord's inner circle, Peter, James, and John, one of the two brothers, James and John. And I want you to notice what we read here in chapter 12. Verse 37, even after, even after Jesus had done all these miraculous signs, raised the dead, fed the thousands, walked on water, made the blind to see, healed the lepers, all these miracles, in their presence, they still would not believe him. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet, Lord who has believed our message, to whom has the Lord, arm of the Lord been revealed. For this reason, they could not believe. Why? Because as Isaiah says elsewhere in this passage from chapter 6, the most quoted passage from Isaiah in the New Testament, he has blinded their eyes, he has deadened their hearts. They can neither see with their eyes, nor understand with their hearts, nor turn, and I would heal them. Now look at this. Isaiah said this, why? Because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him. What did Isaiah see? The Apostle John says, when he had that vision of the King of glory, John says, it was Jesus. There's no other way to interpret that. This is, there is no other place in Isaiah that you have this kind of a vision of God. The Apostle John says he saw Jesus. And it affirms what we, what we believe when we see in the Old Testament. So often these, these appearances of God with people. I believe that the man who wrestled with Jacob, the, the, the one who came to Abraham, the one who came to Joshua, these encounters with God, I, I, I personally believe it is Jesus, the second person of the Trinity. And when I say second person, please, it is not first, second, and third. It is first, second, and third. They are three in one, one in three. He clearly says this king of glory that Isaiah saw was Jesus in his glory. And that is why he spoke this way. What did Isaiah see? Did God change? Did the Lord change? Or was it unveiled to him and all of a sudden he could see the reality of what the God of Israel looked like in his glory? I want us to transition to another encounter with God because it involves this Apostle John. And, you, and I think many of you know it well, but I don't ever want to assume that because there are many there are many come and, and maybe don't have this background. I want you to feel comfortable and understand this too. And I want you to look at Matthew chapter 17. Another encounter with God. It involved Peter, James, and John. John who said this. Isaiah saw Jesus Christ in his glory in that vision. Isaiah, I mean in Matthew, excuse me, Matthew chapter 17. After six days, now, now this is all very important because remember, remember who he's talking to, who he's talking to. Jesus and his disciples are are ministering in Israel. They're in Judea. They're in Palestine. They're in Galilee. This is where they are. This is their context. It's with it's with their fellow Jews. 
It's with people very familiar with the Old Testament. It's with people who are looking forward to the Messiah returning. And there are key figures in this Messianic story of, of, of the prophets who will return, of Elijah who will have a special place. And Moses in Jewish literature, Moses is a very, very, he is the key person in Jewish history, Jewish story. Abraham is the father, but Moses is the deliverer. And he will have a place in the kingdom as well. It's part of Jewish tradition and Jewish literature. And, and, and these, these key people. And if you remember the story when Moses goes up the mountain and he takes Joshua and he, and he goes up there, there's a point at which we are told in, in, in Exodus that there was a six day waiting period before the unveiling with Moses when he's, when he is in, when he's in God's presence. And in God's presence, he is, he is so, he is, he is so close to this that when he comes down, they say, Moses, put a veil over your face. You're blinding us. You're still reflecting God's glory. And there was a six-day waiting period. And, and the gospel writer here, Matthew, Matthew the tax collector, says this, after six days, they would have caught that. Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and he led them up a high mountain by themselves, up in Galilee, and there, he, that is Jesus, was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun. His clothes became as white as the light. And just then there appeared before him and before them Moses and Elijah talking to Jesus. This is called the story of the what? Transfiguration. Transfiguration. He was transfigured before. They, he just called him and said, let's go up this mountain. And it's, you can walk up this mountain. This is not like climbing Mount Rainier. Okay, If you've been to the Holy Land, you, you've seen these mountains. They went up to the hill. They went up this high hill, up this mountain. The Mount of Transfiguration. It's still it's a traditional site today when you go there where they can point this out to you in Galilee. And all of a sudden, Jesus was changed. And I want to ask you about what, what, what happened? Was, did, what changed? I mean, he went up there like us, right? He was, he was, a, he was a human. He was fully human. God, Jesus was fully human. He was dressed in human's clothes. He had human hair and a human face. He ate human food. He traveled. He slept. He ate. He was weary. He was, he was energized. He, he took time to pray. He was a human being. He was, we, we teach this in our Christian theology. He was fully Human, while he was fully God. It is called the Incarnation. And he goes up with his fully human friends. And he goes up the mount, and all of a sudden, it changes dramatically. It changes so amazing. That says his face shone like the sun. When was the last time you looked at the sun? Dr. Mohanneson, I hope they're all saying no, right? <laughs> Not a good idea. I mean, you looked at the eclipse some time ago, and you had to prepare for that and be very careful about that. You don't look at the sun. His face was so blazing. It would have been looking like the sun. And the language here, use of his clothes, it, it talks about um, the, the, the laundry and how you would, you would launder something so white, it was pure white, it was dazzling. I mean, can you imagine Peter, James, and John walking up there, talking to Jesus about whatever they're talking about, and getting up there, and all of a sudden, there it is. 
He's, he's completely transfigured before them. His face is blazing. His clothes are blazing. And all of a sudden, here are two people with him, two of the most important people from Jewish history that are going to have two very important places in the Messianic kingdom, this coming kingdom they're all looking forward to. And there they are talking, Moses and Elijah and Jesus, talking together. And, and Peter looks at this. And you know, a lot of times... Peter gets Peter gets blamed. You know, I don't know why we do this. We, you know, for being impetuous and for speaking at the wrong time. Well, at least he says something, right? I mean, at least Peter speaks. Thanks, Linda. You you like that, yeah? At least he says something, and he looks at the situation. I wonder how did he, how did he know it was Moses and Elijah? By the way, he never seen Moses and Elijah. Yeah, how did he know it was them? Was he listening to the conversation? Was it just like, this This has to be Mo? Who else would it be? But whatever it is, he knows it's Moses and Elijah. And listen, friends, you have to understand in this context, clearly these disciples don't fully get who Jesus is yet. It's not possible. It's not possible. Peter does claim, yes, you are the Christ. You are the Son of God. But in in Jewish thinking, and I, I wonder if in Peter's thinking, there's sort of this equality. Wow, he is the same as Moses and Elijah. I mean, I wonder if that didn't elevate Jesus even more in his thinking, even though he didn't realize who he really was yet. But to see him like this and to see him talking with these two Old Testament Messianic figures who are going to have a part of the story in the future. And, and Peter says, Peter says to them, Lord, it is good for us to be here. It's good for us to be here. Is this the kingdom? Is, is this it? Is it? Is this what we've been waiting for as God's people? Is this it? It's good for us to be here. If you wish, I will put up three shelters. One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Friends, this is these tents. It's like uh, the, the Feast of Tabernacles. It's a feast of booths where they, where they would go out and live in booths in the, in the wilderness. But it's also the idea of a place of worship. I will put up a tent. We will worship. There's three of you here. Let's put up three tents. And you see how he puts Jesus on the same level with them? He puts, let's build three tents, all three of you. This is amazing. This is, and I wonder, but at the same time, don't you think he's terrified? How could you, how could you see the Lord looking like this and not be like Isaiah thinking, woe is us. (laughs) Woe are us. However, it's proper in English. And he says, well, let's build three tents. Let's do something. Let's, let's do this right. And it's while he's speaking. It's while he's speaking. While he is still speaking. This bright cloud enveloped them. Cloud? Burning bright cloud? What, what is that? What would it, what to a Jew like Peter, James, and John, what would this cloud remind them of? Huh? What? The Shekinah glory of God. What led them and protected them through the 40 years in the wilderness. The fire by night and the cloud by day. The cloud that rested over the tabernacle. The cloud that filled the Holy of Holies when Solomon dedicated the temple. This cloud that overcame them all of a sudden. This is God's very presence. This is not just what well, you're looking up in the sky if you could, although it doesn't look too bad today, does it? It looks pretty nice out there. 
But this is not just a cloud. This is the presence of God falls over them. And it's in this cloud of presence while Peter is just finished speaking this that he hears this voice. A voice. Peter's not used to hearing the voice of God from heaven. And he audibly hears this voice that says, This is my Son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. Same thing I said about Moses. This is my prophet. Listen to him. And, and Moses talked about in Deuteronomy 18 about the day when God would send another prophet. You can read it in Deuteronomy 18. And Moses says, listen to him. And all of a sudden God confirms what Moses said. And Moses is there and, and it confirms to Peter, James and John, this is the Messiah. This is the one that you've been waiting for. Listen to him. Listen to him. I am well pleased with this. In verse 6, the disciples heard this. They fell face down to the ground, terrified. Just like Isaiah. Woe is me. I am dead. For I am in the presence of God. And it's gone. It's over. They're laying on the ground. Fearful for their lives. As they should be. And Jesus touches them. I love this. Don't you love, don't you love this in the, in the Gospels? How Jesus touches people, speaks to people. People like the woman with those years of bleeding touched his garment. Jesus says, who touched me? And the disciples say, what? This crowd of all these people, what do you mean who touched? No, somebody touched me. Jesus touched them. He touched them. And he says to them, I think in a very kind voice. Don't be afraid. They looked up. There was Jesus. Wearing the same clothes, probably dirty from walking in. I mean, this, this is the Middle East. It's a lot of dusty paths. And there, this, this, what they just had seen, this, this, glor- this uh, radiant, blazing white, as pure white as possible that you can't even imagine Here it is, just Jesus again, wearing the same clothes, same beard. It was just him. It was over. Let me ask you, what changed? What changed? Did did Jesus all of a sudden change into something new and then change back again? What changed? It's interesting, the word that's used here for transfiguration, transfigure, is the word metamorphosis, that we get our word metamorphosis from. Metamorpho. It's a Greek verb, and it means to change. But did he change? Isn't this who he was? Don't we teach that Jesus Christ was fully God and fully human? What changed? Was it them? Was it their eyes that changed? Did did Jesus, did did God for that blazing moment allow the the humanity of him that veiled this, if you will, that veiled this glory that was always there and continues to be there, that all of a sudden it was taken away so they could see it? Friends, this blazing glory of divinity 
was in him the whole time, from the time he was born in Bethlehem as a baby. We celebrated just a few months ago. This little baby in the manger was the blazing, glorious God of heaven. The same John, the same John, the same John is the one who said, Isaiah saw the Lord Jesus Christ. What changed? Well, it's a mystery. It's who he was and it's what he was. But something changed. There was a metamorphosis. There was a transfiguration. And Peter, James, and John saw it. They saw it. But it was him. Interesting. We won't take time to do this, but the rest of the story, just like Isaiah was given this commission to very mundane to go back and preach and don't be, don't expect them to listen to you. What's amazing to this, the story to me is talk about a mountaintop experience. When this is over, they go back down the mountain and the first thing they encounter is all these people coming to them with these problems and swamped by these people again. And why can't we do this? Why couldn't your disciples do this? And Jesus said, you can't, it's only by prayer. I mean, I just, I wonder, if, I wonder if Jesus, after talking to Moses and Elijah, comes down that mountain and just, oh, wow, <laughs> you know, his people. And they go back to their preaching, teaching, nobody listening for the most part, opposition on the road to Calvary and the death of our Lord Jesus Christ. What changed? Isaiah saw God. I think it was Jesus Christ, according to John. God didn't change. Something happened for Isaiah. It was a moment, and he went back. These three disciples, for that brief moment, they saw what he really was. And then his human flesh must have veiled it again when he was over. That word metamorphosis, to change. Now, see if you can help me now this, make this connection. Let's go to Romans chapter 12. I want us, before we leave here, just look at two passages. Romans chapter 12. We're talking about encounters with God. But I'm hoping as we talk about this, that you and I will realize what an encounter with God is. Do we encounter God? Do you encounter God? Do I encounter God in my mundane, everyday, day-to-day life? Last few weeks when you've been snowed in, right? And do we encounter God? Romans chapter 12. The Apostle Paul says to believers in Jesus Christ, Jew and Gentile alike, he says this, Therefore, in light of, in light of chapter 9 through 11, which is one of the most powerful, if, if I could say that, if you don't mind, doctrinal passages in the New Testament, he says, Therefore, in light of this, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, in view of God's grace and mercy and kindness, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices. You know, sometimes it's harder to be a living sacrifice than a dead sacrifice. As living sacrifices.
sacrifices. Holy. How could you say that? Holy. And pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Look at it. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world. Do not act outwardly like you did before. Now, come on, we dress the same, we look the same, some of you wear the same haircut as others, I don't have to, but, you know, we, we what's different? We drove the same cars, we walked the same streets, our building looks like a lot of buildings, it's, you know, we're like the world in a lot of ways. But Paul says here, it's different, friends, and you know it's different. Don't outwardly keep acting and speaking and being like what you used to be. He says, don't do this anymore. But instead, and look at this word, it's the exact same word used of Jesus Christ, the Mount of Transfiguration. It's one of the few places used in the New Testament. But instead, be transformed as Jesus was, transfigured, it's the same word. By the renewing of your mind, and you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, perfect, and pleasing will. Paul says, I urge you, I beg you, I plead with you. Don't, don't outwardly just act like nothing's changed. But inwardly, be transfigured. Be what you really are. You see, when Jesus was, I like it this way, when Jesus was changed before them, he simply reflected for that brief moment what he really was. If he was truly God, he was always that blazing image of God. It was just veiled in the flesh part of him. And I think Paul is saying to me in this passage here, and to you, and to the Roman Christians. Inwardly, let's start there. Let's let God transform us, transfigure us, so that what comes out of us, what flows out of us in how we talk, how we act, how we love and care, that it's a transfiguration that reflects what we truly are on the inside. And I want to close with this passage that builds upon this. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. These are Paul's early epistles. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. He writes to this church at Corinth. And he, and the context here is this the story of Moses and how his face was blazing and reflected God's glory. And also how his, his fellow Israelites allowed did not allow the veil to be taken away so they could they could see Christ so many of them and many of them did in verse 15 even to this day when Moses is bred a veil covers their hearts but whenever anyone Jew Gentile doesn't matter whenever anyone turns to the Lord the veil is taken away now the Lord is the spirit you notice this in capital s suggesting Holy Spirit, I think, in the English anyway, that's the interpretation of translators. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. 
And I put a parenthesis here, my, I wrote in my Bible, the parentheses, all reflect the Lord's glory, parentheses. I think that's a parenthetical statement. There is freedom, and all reflect the Lord's glory. Those people are being, now look at here's this word again. And I want you to notice the English is very good here, because we get this idea of this ongoing activity. They are being. You know what that word means, right? Being. They are being transformed into his likeness with he's talking about people here. Talking about us with ever increasing glory. Really? Really? Do you and I really have the potential as believers in Jesus Christ to really somehow reflect on the outside what is true on the inside and that we are being reflective of God's glory increasing and increasing and increasing? Is that possible? Notice where the result where it comes from. Which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So listen, friends. How do we encounter God? We're probably not going to stand on the Mount of Transfiguration. We're probably not going to wrestle with the angel of God. He's probably not going to appear to us with three servants and start talking to us. He's probably not going to appear like he did to Joshua with the sword drawn as the captain of the host of Yahweh. How do we encounter God? Isn't the answer right there? It's the Holy Spirit. And friends, this amazing miracle that you and I will never comprehend. How can we ever comprehend this? That the Holy Spirit indwells us. Is that really possible? That the God that Isaiah saw and fell down, that the God that filled the temple, that the Holy Spirit indwells us and leads us and can bring us in our weakness and in our frailty and nobody needs to tell you and nobody needs to tell me how frail we are and how human we are, right? Is it possible that God is enabling us each day that goes by to grow and reflect His glory. Isn't that what it says? And we encounter God daily. How can we not encounter God daily if the Holy Spirit dwells in us? Paul says, don't quench the Holy Spirit because He is there. And friends, we are being transfigured daily into the glory of God. 
while we are here on this earth. You know, this last week we we had a time, I know many of you couldn't come, and as mentioned, there'll be an opportunity to share in the service for Marine. That it was a, it's just an amazing story. I mean, it's to, to share in a life like Marine's. And to hear as Anne read that life history of the you know time in her life when God spoke to her. It didn't have to be an audible voice. And we should never apologize for that. We are not a Pentecostal church. I, you, you maybe have gathered that by now. In, in, in some of the way we, you know, but I have Pentecostal brothers and sisters, very good, dear friends in the ministry. And, and uh, dear friends. We look at things a little differently on some things. But listen, we should never, ever, ever apologize or hesitate to talk about the Holy Spirit speaking to us. I mean, if the Holy Spirit is in our lives and, and, and God leads you and moves you, and I mean, if, if, let's, let's, let's never be afraid to talk about that we believe in miracles. We believe in God. We believe in the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit lives within. And that was a wonderful story, Sherwood, how, how Marine, the Holy Spirit just gave her that. And it changed. And it was another change point in her life. And it, look at it, you look back on a life like Marine Sage. And I ask you, I ask you, was this not a life that was continually, even during the difficult days, reflecting the glory of God? Yes, it is possible to live that way. It is possible. It is possible. Woe, I don't think this is right. And someone will correct me. Woe is us. <laughs> Woe are us. But by the power and the presence of God, we stand here as trophies of His grace. And in that woe, reflect the mercy, love, grace, and majesty of God. Why don't we live that way? And why don't we treat people that way if that's really what we are inside? Let's close our service, John. Thank you. I had a little extra time preaching today. Um, you make some of the connections and make some of the applications to your life. What were you going to sing, John? Made the words in my mouth? Yes. All right. Good choice. Let's sing together. Let's bow our heads in prayer. And as we do so, it just occurred to me that maybe there's some here today that in your humanity and as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus Christ, that in your human condition you've maybe been impressed with the glory of God and the difference between uh, us and God. And whatever it is, and you might be like Peter, James, and John with your face down and feeling face down right now, that you would just, uh, you would let Christ touch you on the shoulder and just say, get up, okay, let's go on. Get up, it's okay, let's go on. And that going on is not going to be life happily ever after. It's going to be life but we can go on with Jesus Christ. And it is possible. It is entirely possible 
to live a life of glorifying the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's get up. Let's get up. And let's move on. We thank you, God, how much you love us. And Father, if there be a person here today who the Holy Spirit has been speaking in their heart lately, it's time. It's time to receive Christ's forgiveness for their sin and receive eternal life and join the great company of believers around the world who follow you. May they make that choice. And may they receive Jesus Christ as their Savior. We leave this place today, as always, in the name, the precious name, Jesus Christ, Son of God, hope of humanity, our Savior.